0: Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you allow us to be here this morning. And God, I want to thank you that you've given us the scriptures to teach us more about who you are. And in knowing more of who you are, Lord, you show us who we are. And so we are thankful that we can be here, and we're thankful for your gift of mercy and of love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a question. The question I ask is, how many of you have ever done something to hurt someone else? Perhaps it was an action. Perhaps it was words or a set of words. But whatever it is that you did, you've done something that has hurt someone else. It doesn't go away even though you've said you're sorry. Now, as Christians, we believe in forgiveness. That's obvious. But even if you're the one that has to forgive the other person, it still hurts a little bit. It still stings a little bit. And sometimes the person that forgives is able to kind of move on and say, okay, we're going to put that behind us and let's not talk about it again, let's move on. But for how many of us who have been the offender, have you been able to just move on from that thing that you did? It's not very easy to do that, is it? In fact, it's oftentimes the offender, the person who hurts the other person, that has a harder time moving on from the thing that they did. Obviously, the bigger that it is, the harder it may feel to be able to move away from it. But oftentimes, it stays with us because we know that we hurt someone that we loved. And so we live with this sense of this condemnation, this sense of, I have done something wrong, and I need to somehow make it right because I have this guilt, or we carry this guilt with us. And I think sometimes we do this not just with the people we love, but we have this kind of relationship with God where we know where all of our shortcomings are. You know the things in your life that are sinful. You know the things that you have done that kind of are outside of the harmony of the way God wishes things were for you. And if you're anything like me, whenever you've done something that's sinful, I I tend to carry that with me even though I stand up and preach every single Saturday morning that we have been forgiven, even though I know that God's grace abounds more than even my worst sin, even though I know what the Bible teaches, I carry this guilt of my sins on my shoulders. I carry it in my soul and in my conscience. So you would say, well, then wouldn't it be easier not to sin the next time, (laughs) since you know how painful that can be? But the truth is, as we learned last week, that there is this thing, the sin that dwells within us that keeps us from being able to live a life that is perfectly the way God would wish that we would. And so we carry this guilt with us. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's there. It's in the back of our heads, and we never really get over it. And so we say things like, well, then uh, today was a bad day, but tomorrow I'm going to do better. Or we wake up in the morning and we say, today will be better and I will live a life that will give honor and glory to God even better today. Because we somehow feel like if we just show God today that we are better than yesterday, that God would somehow nod in favor. As we come to Romans chapter 8, and I invite you to open your Bibles. Paul's kind of talking about what I've just been talking about now. About the weight of sin on us. The pain that those of us who who are ashamed or who are sorry or are repenting of the sins we have committed. Paul is talking about this. And in chapter 8, verse 1, if you have the Red Bible, it's page 800. And Paul begins chapter 8 by saying this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why would Paul even have to say this? Paul has spent the first seven chapters and we have spent the first seven chapters and what it seems like maybe, I think it's been like five months that we've been going through about seven chapters of scripture, hearing Paul time and time again say that we have been forgiven, that we have been saved, that we have security in Christ regardless of the sins that we have committed. And then Paul kind of wraps up this first part of Romans by saying, even though you are a sinner, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. The guilt that you feel are your own feelings because the death of Christ on the cross, it absolves you, it cleanses you. What God sees in you is no longer the the sinfulness of who you are, but rather God sees the Jesus that is within you. And so when God would look down on you and judge you, if God God were to do that now, what God would see is not the sins that you committed this morning or yesterday or the month before. But what God would see is that you have given your life to Christ and God would see only Christ in you. Because that's the only way you get to enter into eternity. Or there's rather, there's two ways. There's one way is to live perfectly all your life without any sin. How, how much luck have you had with that? I have not had very good luck. And I get paid to be holy. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? The other option to get into eternal life, to spend this eternal life with God is to surrender yourself and accept Christ into your life and allow his sacrifice to be enough for you and for Paul what we see. And what he's been explaining is that you can never be perfect enough. No matter how much you try, no matter how much you desire, no no matter how much you will to be good and perfect, it is a fool's errand. And so we go to chapter 8 of Romans verse 2. And he continues, he says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Another way to translate this would be this way. For the gospel has set you free from the consequences of not being able to keep all of the law. I'll say that again. The gospel has set you free from the consequences of not being able to keep all of God's law. See, it's not that we lack desire. Because I think, I mean, we're all here this morning. We, are, we all have the desire and the will and the want to, to be able to live lives that live up to what God wishes for us. So there is no doubt in my heart that we want to be as perfect as possible. The problem is that we are just unable to keep all of the moral laws that we find in Scripture because we are self-sabotaging human beings. Chapter 7 of Romans ends with, there is sin that dwells within us, and so we are unable and incapable of doing everything right all of the time. And so God in God's goodness and love and mercy, God comes down to fulfill this, 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 this requirement. He fulfills the law. Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He comes to live it out perfectly. Now, in the first century, when a rabbi, let's say I was a, let's just say, let's pretend that I was a rabbi. And Jonathan was my student. And I'd say, Jonathan, read to me, I don't know, Exodus 20, verse 10. And he would read it. And I would say, now explain to me what does that mean? Now, if he explained it in such a way that was the right way to understand it, then I, as a rabbi, would say, you have just fulfilled the law. But if he had his own interpretation and it was just wacky and weird and it didn't make any sense, then I would say, you have just abolished the law. So what we find in the very person in the life of Jesus is that when he says he comes to fulfill the law, what he's actually doing is he's showing us what it would look like to live a life that follows the way of what God wants for us. And so Paul says the gospel came. Jesus comes. God in the human flesh comes to do what you are unable to do. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many chances God gives you, and he gives us endless chances, you can never, ever be sinless enough. Now let me give you an example. Let me give you an illustration of this. I remember when I was, I don't know, I was probably six or seven years old. I remember I, we grew up in a home where we, weren't, we didn't have a lot of money. At least that's what my dad would always tell us. He would always give us this analogy I would say, Dad, how's the money today? I don't remember why I would ask him, but he would always say this, ah, the boots are fitting kind of tight today. He said it in Spanish, so it was different, <laughs> less words, but that was the point. And I would always say, uh, and when I was a little kid, I was like, I don't understand that. Like, I didn't comprehend metaphor. And he was like, we just have enough. That's all. That's what it means. And so he always had this thing of, oh, we just have enough. We just barely have enough. So when Christmases would roll around, and I know, right, it's like, it's almost summertime here, but I'm talking about Christmas because I love it. But when, when Christmas times would come around, most of the gifts that we would receive were hand-me-downs from the rich people's houses that my mom used to clean. So my mom, you know, cleans houses. She would, clean, you know, work for these very wealthy people. So we would always get the gifts after Christmas when their kids got the new stuff and got rid of the old stuff, which was don't feel bad for me because it was awesome because we got all the toys we wanted and we didn't have to pay for any of it. So, it was, you know, it worked out for us. And the only stuff my parents would buy us were, like, socks, underwears, and T-shirts. My mom still does that. It's weird. They would give us the necessities, not the things that we wanted, because the boots were tight. So I remember one year when I was probably seven or eight years old. I'm telling you this to set up the story, but when I was about seven or eight years old, I remember there was a present, and it was, in, it was, like, a rectangular box, and it was underneath the tree, and it had my brother's name and my name on it. I was like, this is, I know this is going to be an awesome gift because it has both of our names on it, and it was heavy. And my mom said we couldn't shake it, so I was like, it's got to be something awesome, you know. And anything was more awesome than socks, underwears, and T-shirts. So I was like, so finally at midnight, they allowed us to open our gifts, and long behold, I think I've told the story before, what I found there was a Nintendo. I know some of you are like, lame, Nintendo, they have two buttons on it. Now controllers have like six or eight or ten buttons on it. But I was so happy. I can't explain to you how happy I was that I finally got a Nintendo. Now, with this Nintendo, it's a a gaming system, right? There was a game that came with it, and it was called Super Mario Brothers. Okay, some of you know. Some of you played it. So I remember my brother and I would take turns, right, because it was a two-player game. We would take turns, and he would always get further than I could. But I remember I was like, I am going to conquer this game. That's how we talked about it back then. We, I am going to conquer this game. And I remember talking to my friends at school, and we would talk about different like you know, techniques, and we would talk about the shortcuts, and all kinds of you know, weird stuff, right? And I remember like after a couple of weeks, my friends were like, oh, I already conquered that game. I moved on to this other game. And I'm like, what, how? Like, how did you do it? And I remember trying to play every free chance I had to continue to play this game because I wanted to conquer. I wanted to beat this game. I wanted to get to the end and see how you beat that last turtle-looking monster man at the very end because all my friends had already told me about it. And I remember trying and trying and trying and trying, and I could not pass this game. I don't even think I got to the last level. Okay, I was that bad. But I kept trying. So finally I was like, you know, this is lame. I'm going to read my Bible. <laughs> no, I was too young. I wasn't reading my Bible back then. But but I was like, this this game is dumb. I'm done with it. So fast forward like 25 years later, 24 years later. I was on the Internet. And you know how when you're on the Internet, there's always these links to all these different like good thing, things that are too good to be true. And on one of them, it was like, play all of your favorite Nintendo games online for free. So what did I do? I clicked on it. I said, finally, I'm 30 years old, 29 years old. I will be able to win. I will conquer. I will defeat, finally, this game that has eluded me for so many years. So I get it. I download whatever. It wasn't even a download. It was just a website. I found Super Mario Brothers, and I started And I was flying through the first level, the second level. I think somewhere in the second level you can like fast forward to the fourth or fifth level. I don't remember, okay, because remember I wasn't that good. And so I was like, finally, after all these years, I will be vindicated. I will finally be able to win and pretend like I did it 30 years ago. And I still wasn't able to conquer that game. I tried and tried and tried. And tried as a 29 year old adult, I kept trying. And still, I couldn't win. I share this story because for me, sin is so much like that. No matter how hard I try, No matter how many ways I try, like in that video game, right? You try to make sure you don't go to certain places because if you go that way, you're going to die. Well, I mean, you can only go one way because it was really old technology. But still, you knew how to stay away and do certain things so that you wouldn't lose your life and have to start over. And no matter what I do in my spiritual life, and I think that this is probably true for you as well, no matter how hard we try, we can never conquer sin in this life. And that's why Paul says there is no condemnation if you are in Christ. Because the fact that you are giving your life and surrendering to Christ is already hard enough. It's already hard enough to believe and to trust in Jesus and that what he did is true. Because we live in a time and a society where there are so many different competing views. So many different competing voices for you, for your allegiance so many things promising you happiness and love and salvation, so it's hard enough to even set your trust and your hope and your, and your love and your, your life in the hands of Christ. And so Paul says there is no condemnation if you've given your life to Christ. So I wrote it like this. The law is a lot like this game. God could give you endless amounts of opportunities to keep his law perfectly, But like me trying to conquer Super Mario Brothers, it's impossible. So God acts out of his love, his mercy and grace. And he sends his son so that Christ could keep this law perfectly. Now, Romans 8, verse 3 is going to kind of keep taking us through this. And it says this. For what the law was powerless to do. And that it was weakened by the sinful nature. And remember we said that the law is good, it's holy, it's true, it's what God desires for us. But it's because of our inability to keep it, that sin, right? The devil comes in and distorts it and makes it even harder for us to keep it. So that's what this means. So what the law was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Let me read verse 4. In order that God sends Jesus to fulfill the law because we were unable to in order that the righteous requirements of the law so what the law demands of us might be fully met in who? In Christ? In us. The requirements of what the law demands have been fulfilled in Christ. And as a result of that, Christ gives salvation to all who will come to him. He gives forgiveness so that the requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us. Because we no longer want to live to the sinful nature, which is where we're just doing whatever we want, whenever we want. But rather we want to live our lives surrendered and submitted to the Spirit of God. He sent his Son in sinful likeness like us. And in Christ's humanness, in his humanity, in his human likeness, he defeated sin. He conquered it. Once and for all. Now, if Jesus had come down just as a God, and he just looked like a human, but he was really a God, then it's not impressive at all that he was able to go through his whole life without sinning. Do you agree with that? That's cheating. All right? God can avoid sin easily because he's God, but the reason that the Bible tells us that Jesus comes in human likeness, in the likeness of sinful human likeness, is because he was playing, in a sense, by the same rules that you and I are playing. And what we find is that the reason that Jesus was able to fulfill these righteous requirements of the law wasn't because he was God, but because he knew what the end meant. He knew that if he could live fully a life submitted to God and to these requirements, that his laying down of his life would be enough to buy your freedom and your forgiveness. And the Bible says that this was a, a sin offering. And a sin offering in the Old Testament, this language, is all of the sins that you do without meaning to even do those sins. So it's not just the ones that you, you committed like and you knew you were doing it, but it's the ones you didn't even know you were committing and you committed anyway. You see, this is the gospel, that there is no condemnation. You are not going to be judged to, to an eternal extinction, or, or what some people would call, you're not going to be cast into hell all eternity but rather you will be forgiven of even your worst sins and the reason for this is because no matter how hard you try you will not be able to fulfill all of the laws please understand that i am not saying that since you cannot keep the law then you don't have to try i'm not saying that since you can't live up to what the bible calls us to do that you might as well not try that's not what i'm saying at all and that's not what the bible teaches But what it does say is that because we cannot fulfill it, God has forgiven us. And here's another illustration, one that may not work very well. Um, I'm not really a boxing fan, but I kind of know the difference between a heavyweight boxer and like a welterweight, I think. So heavyweight is like, I don't know, over 250, 200 pounds. I don't don't know what it is, but it's big guy versus a little guy. Who's going to win every single time? The big guy. And that's like you trying to go up against, you know... Sin and saying like, oh, I'm going to defeat you. No, you're going to lose because you're not strong enough to defeat all of the sin. And God knows that. And so in essence, Jesus does what no other human being can do. And he was able to overcome, conquer and resist sin. And in my notes, I wrote, this is why it's important for us to read the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Because you see, it wasn't that Jesus was a superhuman kind of person. But what we find time and time again in these books of the Bible is that Jesus would often go away on his own to pray, his connection, his communion with God. I believe that what the Bible teaches is that the reason that Jesus was able to live a life without sin is because he had surrendered his life so fully to the will of God that he did only what God asked him to do. And he was only able to know what God was asking him to do because of his connection to him. And remember, some of you are saying, but Jesus was still somehow God. But I encourage you to remember that that final closing scene when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says that he was sweating out blood, right? So it's this dramatic intensification of this pain that Jesus was feeling. And there is this line that Jesus says, Father, if, if you can make this cup go away from me, or if you can let this cup pass before me, then let it be. But if not, then let your will be done. And now the cup was this metaphor of the wrath of God. And so Jesus, in his humanity, says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let it be that way, because Jesus knew what was coming. And so I want to kind of just go on for a few more minutes and Finish reading this segment in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now in another letter, Paul would say that, the, that this first part, right, that those who set their desires on sinful flesh... He says that these there's, he lists about 15 different things in Galatians that are like the sinful desires. So he lists fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities or like you know quarrels, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and then he says and things like these. So this is not a, a complete or exhaustive list of what it means to live by the sinful nature. But what Paul is saying is that there's, you will either live by trying to satisfy your own wishes, your own desires, or you will live a life that is surrendered to the Spirit. And here's the thing. Some of you are asking, well, how do I know which one, like where I fall? Am I living by sinful flesh or am I living by the Spirit? So Paul gives us a second list and he says that, and, and he gives us 10 different things that show us if you're living life in the Spirit. And this is the list. He says, the fruit of the Spirit are love. And so I guess my question would be, what is your posture towards the people you come in contact with, towards the people in the church sitting across the aisle from you, with your family? Is your primary posture love? See, love is easy to love those who we love, and even those that we love, we do a really bad job showing it sometimes. But according to living life in the spirit, is your primary posture for how you see and treat others love? Number two, do you have joy? Is there joy in your life or are you always upset at why things aren't going the way you want them to go? Are you always upset because of the situations you find yourself in? Or can you genuinely say that you have this sense of joy that regardless of what's going on all around you, you can still feel joy? The third one that he mentions is peace, right? We live in a world with a lot of very little peace, with a lot of quarrels, with a lot of drama. But to be part of living in the spirit of God says that even in the midst of those storms that you will find peace in your heart. Number five, or actually four, you know, are you patient? That's a tough one, especially living in Southern California, When you have to drive these freeways, I don't get very patient. I'm extremely impatient. But again, if you're living life in the spirit, do you have a spirit of patience towards those you disagree with? Do you have a spirit of patience to hear what others are saying? Do you have a spirit of patience when you are interacting with people that you disagree with? The next one he says is kindness. If people had to describe you, would they describe you as someone who is kind? Or someone who is mean, someone who is short, uh, short-tempered, are you kind? Are you generous? Generosity is a fruit of the Spirit. Are you, do you take the posture of saying, everything I have has been given to me, and so what I have, I now give to you? Is that how you are living your life? Or are you saying, I worked hard for this, there is no way I'm going to share this with anyone? There's a story that Jesus says of a man who has an abundance of wealth and of grain. And he has so much grain that he has to build more storage places to be able to save all of the grain that he has. And The Bible says this night your life has been demanded of you. Because he misunderstood that his wealth wasn't just for him to live a lavish lifestyle. But it was given to him so that he would be a blessing to others. Are you generous? Faithfulness. That was pretty self-explanatory. Gentleness and self-control. Some of you are saying, well, I, I can do better on some of these. And to understand this incorrectly is to then go out today and try to be better at all of these. The problem with just trying to be better at peace and patience and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness, the problem with trying is that it'll just be a superficial thing that you might be able to do for a couple of days. But when you submit your life to God, God's spirit works through you in such a way that these just become a natural overflow of your love and of your dedication to Christ. And so we'll finish with the last two verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 9. I think, six. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those, And those are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse nine, yet. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, and if if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong in Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through the spirit who lives in you. And there we have this kind of summation of what Paul has been saying in the first eight chapters. Is that what God sees in you is the Christ that is living within you. And when you have submitted your life to Christ and when you have accepted Christ into your life, there is now no condemnation for the sins that you have committed. Because God understood Because God understands how impossible a task it is for us to live perfectly. And that is why he sends his son to do what we were powerless to do for ourselves. Because God wants to get as many people into eternity. Because he wants to spend all of the rest of whatever time is in your presence. and He wants to give you the fullness of all that he has.